Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix was written by J.K. Rowling, J.K. Rowling, (laughs) and published in 2003. (laughs) And the film adaptation came out in 2007 and was directed by David Yates. And it's interesting because uh, David Yates would go on to direct every other movie in the Harry Potter series, not only uh, the Harry Potter films, but also the two Fantastic Beast movies that have come out. Yeah. So he's kind of gone on to become... The like, Harry Potter director? The Yeah, basically the <laughs> Harry Potter guy. Yeah. Um, which is kind of interesting. So seeing this movie as being like the first and seeing some of his like visual touches and stuff that would go on later in the series. I think it's a good time in the movie series to bring consistency. And that's what we see from here on out. I agree. I even read recently that Chris Columbus, who directed the first two, had been like, maybe I want to come back for later ones. And it's like, no, no, <laughs> and no. And they're like, no, no, no. Shh, shh. <laughs> <laughs> you did your part. You did great. Like, let someone else take it. Uh, just a reminder to all our listeners um, that whenever we talk about a Harry Potter adaptation, we do donate all our Patreon earnings for that month. So we'll be donating January's uh, Patreon income to a trans-focused organization. Uh, We do not agree with J.K. Rowling's horrific views on trans folks, and we want to put our money towards a cause that we believe in and to support trans people, and especially in our own community. So we've been donating to Sisters PGH, which is an organization that um, helps trans the trans community in Pittsburgh. So we'll be donating to them again this month. We definitely encourage you, you know, if you feel like it, donate to sisters or donate to another organization that helps trans folks because, you know, they always need it. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah, fifth Harry Potter, the longest book in the series, (laughs) clocking in at just under 900 pages. Yeah. Yeah. We did it. We did it. We're (laughs) going to do our best to make this not too long, but it is probably going to be a long episode just because there is so much to talk about, even trimming it as much as we can. Like there's still so much that happens in this story. Yeah. And it's interesting because the movie is kind of structured differently than a lot of the other films um, in ways that we'll get to. But it was actually written by... um, someone (laughs) i don't have their name in front of me um but someone who uh i guess like someone else wrote basically all the other harry potter films and this one uh was written by a different person interesting um because the normal writer kind of had previous uh engagements so i think it is kind of noticeable in like the way it's structured because it's a pretty tight film it is it's actually almost the shortest movie yeah is what i read it's really close to being the shortest Mm -hmm. so um, yeah, so there's a lot of book stuff that we'll be addressing as we go, but not too much. <laughs> <laughs> we pick up where we always pick up Harry Potter and the Terrible Summers. He's having another terrible one. Yes. And it's also a very, very hot summer. And mm-hmm. he's just trying to cool off at a playground, you yeah. know, just finding his own. Just hanging out. Yeah. Uh, when who comes to bother him but Big D. <laughs> Big D. Oh <laughs> Big my God. D. <laughs> Yeah, Dudley Dursley. And, you know, I was happy that the fat shaming was toned down in this book. Yeah, it was. And we're pretty quickly, like, brought in on, like, an action set piece. So we don't really focus on, like, oh, and then Dudley's fat (laughs) Jiggly body. Yeah. (laughs) Well, also, I liked that, um, 
seeing the evolution of Dudley, yeah. you know, being from spoiled, pampered brat to being like a, a pretty bully. shitty b- bully in person. Yeah. And seeing Harry and him interact in a different environment that's like outside of um, uh, his aunt and uncle. Yes. And kind of seeing. With his like gang. Yeah. So I liked this. It, it felt different than the beginnings of all the other books. Like there's no wacky hijinks that kick the book off. Well, and I think it actually thematically ties into the story about people abusing power to those who are like less Mm, powerful than them, you know? I mean, it seems so simple, but I was thinking about it earlier and I was just like, you know, Dudley beating up these like 10 year old kids that are like so much smaller than him. And then this having like a connection to Umbridge, like later on and her like tormenting students who are like, they can't defend themselves against her. When I remember in the third book, uh, his the aunt that comes to visit it was similar where i kind of forget now but she was like ranting about like people should just be locked up and like you know forgotten about and that was like a theme of the book Mm -hmm. so i do think it's in some of these books it's great when uh these early parts tie tie into the themes yeah i agree the dementors uh attack though and harry is able to just in time produce a patronus which drives them away Fun fact, I love in the book, he thinks about Ron and Hermione I know. when he pr- produces the Patronus, which yeah. I really loved. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he's able to uh, defend himself. And then Mrs. Fig shows up, uh, his good old neighbor, Mrs. Fig, who's yeah. revealed to be a squib that's been like spying on Harry for probably his whole life. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, so they get back and uh, Harry is like basically sent to his room. and well, Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole thing about how he used magic outside of school and he's expelled and then he's not expelled and then he's going to have to have a hearing. And, you know, I don't want to dwell on this because we've talked about this in other episodes, but I just want to say in both the book and the movies, it makes no sense. (laughs) It's very (laughs) um, inconsistent and kind of odd. Yeah. Like in the second book, uh, Harry gets in trouble because Dobby does magic in his house. And I guess they just know that magic was done, but they don't know who does it. Yeah. But then in this instance, magic was done just in a neighborhood and they're like, it was you, Harry. We know that you're the one who did it. It's like, well, why do you know that this time? But in the second book, you didn't know that Harry didn't do it. Yeah. And plus, I imagine that this is like the most common thing. If this was really against the law to happen. Yeah. And if you did it twice, you would just be expelled. Like that makes no sense. No. And this is kind of addressed later because, um, you know, Dumbledore points out that like, Oh, we're going to have a whole trial for a case of underage. Like, clearly it's not usually like that big of a deal. Yeah, but he got the expulsion letter, not from Umbridge, from like someone else in the department. Yeah, well, they're making it a bigger deal than I think it usually would be is, yeah. the, is the thing. But still, yeah, it seems like uh, it, it's just inconsistent. And especially in the third, the third movie. Yeah. We just see Harry doing a Lumos spell like under his blankets. Yeah. And it's just, like never. <laughs> I don't know. Like it's fine. Blankets are the magical barrier that the ministry can't see through. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I think we talked about this in other episodes, but like, what about in wizarding families when magic happens in the house, like all the time? Well, yeah. How can they tell if they couldn't tell that it was Dobby and not Harry that did the magic in the second one? Yeah. Anyway. Not to nitpick. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So Harry just gets all these, these, you know, these letters, like not only from the ministry expelling him, 
But uh, then from Dumbledore saying stay put, like in the book, he gets like a lot of letters. Yeah. And even his aunt gets a letter from someone who mysteriously Harry doesn't know. And it's a howler. It's a howler. And they tell Petunia, like, remember the promise you made, essentially. Yeah. Remember my last Petunia is what it says. And this is on the point when they're about to kick Harry out. And then Petunia after this is like, no, no, he has to stay. Like, yeah. And eventually, members of the Order of the Phoenix come to rescue Harry from yeah. the Dursleys, as he needs to be rescued almost every year. <laughs> <laughs> but we have some new faces joining the crowd. We have real Mad-Eye Moody. Yes. Not, not uh, Barty Crouch not Jr. Not fake Mad-Eye Moody. <laughs> but who just, you know, acts like we remembered him from the previous books, essentially, yeah, yeah. or movie. Um, we get Kingsley, who's mm-hmm. a new face. Shacklebolt. Shacklebolt. And Tonks, a, I think a fan favorite character. Yeah. I did not remember Tonks, like, at all when I first read the books. And I kind of understand why, because she seems to just be clumsy is yeah. her main attribute. I wish she was more in the story. I really do. I bet they could come out with, like, a book about, like, just the Order members, you know? Yeah. That would be kind of interesting, because it's clear there's a lot going on. But Harry's just not part of it, because he's too young right now. Uh-huh. Um, so she's great. Um, who else came with them? Mundungus Fletcher. Yes, Mundungus is a new character. Something I realized reading these books as we get into the bigger ones, I'll read a name and be like, oh, fuck, do I remember who this... Have, we, have I met yeah. this person before? Because, like, I don't know, the last book, you had Ludo Bagman and, yeah. and Barty Crouch Sr. and Jr. And, like, you get so many names mm-hmm. that sometimes I read one, especially when they're such goofy names. And I'm oh, like, yeah, they're all like Have that. I met this person before? <laughs> and luckily, it's pretty good about reminding you if you have. But um, And then, of course, Lupin and Sirius and even Snape, we find mm-hmm. out as a member of the Order. And the Weasleys. And the Weasleys. Mm-hmm. But essentially, the Order of the Phoenix is uh, a group that Dumbledore established to fight Voldemort. And I find this very interesting how it's not the government that's like preparing to fight Voldemort. It has to be people like on their own. Yeah. Like starting their own grassroots. Yeah. Like organizations. Mm-hmm. They're really on the ground and they're kind of secretive too because, you know, the wizarding community is still denying that Voldemort has returned. So, you know, they're using actually Sirius's family house as a hideout, which mm-hmm. is, there's a cool scene where you see it like kind of coming like emerging between yeah. two buildings, which is cool. Um, and Harry, of course, is like super curious about like, what is the order doing? I want to help. I want to be part of this. Um, but Mrs. Weasley is pretty adamant that him, Hermione, Ron, and Ginny, and Fred, and George as well, like their kids, they're, they're too, too young. young. They have to stay out of it. Yeah. Um, so this is like frustrating to Harry because like Harry has just been, has felt like he's been sidelined ever yes. since Voldemort came back. Like, being left out of the loop, not being informed about things. And mm-hmm. this is only like furthering that, I think. Yeah. And he asks Ron and Hermione, like, why haven't you been telling me anything? Like your letters haven't said anything about what's going on. You've been here for part of the summer. Why haven't you like just told me what's happening? I've been like worrying and being afraid that I would start seeing muggle killings on the news. Like I was watching the news yeah. and like just really frustrated and this kind of comes to a head in a scene which is sort of repeated throughout the book and in the movie a bit as well but a harry just kind of like yelling at ron and hermione Mm -hmm. yeah and and this is something that i think has been repeated a lot since the book came out like this is all caps harry yeah um harry yelling harry being angsty harry you know just like shouting a lot and i kind of have 
a bit of a problem with that, like, uh, description of it. Yeah. Because I genuinely think the book does a very good job of not justifying Harry's anger, but, like, making you sympathetic towards him. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, first of all, after witnessing Cedric being killed by Voldemort returning, like, he has some PTSD, no doubt. Like, he's having nightmares about it. He's yeah, going good. through a so lot. So, we're on the same page, Ian. I actually just looked up, I wanted to read uh, the symptoms of PTSD. Mm. Um, so, some symptoms are agitation, irritability, hostility, hypervigilance, self-destructive behavior, social isolation, flashbacks, fear, severe anxiety or mistrust, loss of interest or pleasure in activities, guilt, loneliness, insomnia, nightmares, and emotional attachment or emotional detachment or unwanted thoughts. And it's not brought up. And I think to its detriment, I think, you know, the author could have been more specific yeah. In th- what Harry's suffering. I think she could have explored that in a little more detail and kind of explained what was going on with Harry. Yeah. Um, I, I still think, like, you do understand to a degree what he's going through. And I think as the story goes, I think all the shitty things that keep happening to Harry, like, it never just feels like uh, the author dumping shit on him for the sake of drama. Like, everything that happens that he's going through feels... um natural in the story i think and harry's response to that feels natural yeah and yeah he is he is like angry and like suffering but um i don't know it doesn't come across to me as just like oh harry's like a moody teenage angst yeah it's literal ptsd like he's suffering and i just find this really tragic and we've talked about this in other episodes but like harry needs therapy yeah and like that's how you treat ptsd is is therapy or medication you Mm -hmm. know and harry doesn't have anyone to even really talk to about this and we talked i think in the last episode about how like he's never had like that loving parent to like talk to confide in no to like just have like a hug you know and like i know the weasleys are there for him but like they have their own stuff going on. Yeah, he doesn't have a stable home life yeah. or structure or anything. Like, mm-hmm. obviously, he has a great support network, but yeah. like, he keeps getting thrown back at the Dursleys like every summer, and um, you know, doesn't have that stability. Yeah. So, yeah, Harry's just going through a lot right at the beginning of the story, and mm-hmm. um, I think for the most part, like, I agree. I wish it was like addressed a little more directly. Yeah. I just wish wizards had therapy. I know. I mean, maybe they do, <laughs> but the, instead they probably have divinations or something. They're like, <laughs> let me read your tea leaves. <laughs> yeah. Just read your tea leaves and you'll be fine. Look to the stars. Yeah. But yeah, so Harry's in a bad place at the start. And I do think reading it this time, I was a lot more sympathetic towards Harry yeah. than I was when I read it when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And because I think, you know, as a more emotionally mature adult, and someone who goes to therapy and like talks about my emotions. Like I think I'm a little more aware of those like warning signs and things that like something is not right. Yeah. And, and you know, Harry's self-aware of it in a lot of times too. Like he can tell that he's just wanting to pick a fight. Like he knows what he's doing is like either irrational or, you know, whatever, but like he just is in a state of agitation. So yeah. Now let's uh, talk a little bit about Sirius because Sirius is a pretty significant character in the book, more so than even the movie, Mm -hmm. uh, where he's kind of in a much more interesting, he's in a very interesting position when this story begins. Yeah. He's living at uh, his parents' old house, 
which he had left when he was a teenager, we find out. He ran away when he was 16. Yeah. His parents kind of disowned him. They were like kind of into the dark arts or into pure blood status. At least supporting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and so, yeah, Sirius uh, decided to like separate himself from his parents and he left. And so he's kind of back at this house that like is technically his, but like is creepy and like he has bad memories of. Yeah. And on top of that, he's still a fugitive and he can't really leave. Mm-hmm. And he wants to be helping the order, but there's not a lot that he can be doing. Yeah. And you can tell that he's kind of in this state of um, feeling frustrated, wanting to do more, but can't really. Yeah, this restlessness to him. And I think it's also worth remembering that he spent like, 13 years in prison, yeah. basically being tortured the whole time. So let's talk about PTSD yeah, here. You know, but he did get some sweet prison tats. <laughs> he did. The movie shows him with some tattoos, and I just want to be like, do the Dementors give them tattoos? <laughs> like, how do they get tattoos in prison? Anyway, um, yeah, I feel like he's suffering too. And like, he's doing his best, but I think there is kind of like a not growing up aspect to him. Yeah. That's really interesting. And Mrs. Weasley mentions this a couple times, like that he kind of treats Harry like James, his father, mm-hmm. and kind of wants to like go on adventures together, wants it to be like old times, is like really kind of chasing the past. And I think when you've spent like this whole amount of time just being like trapped and like losing that like he wants to just go back well and we've read books in the past like just mercy which you know has real accounts of people being in prison for a lot of years yeah and then when they're released it's not just like oh and everything was great it's like no their uh, life is kind of bad yeah their life is still really messed up and there's a lot of shit to like deal with and uh i think this captures that really well yeah um and sirius's kind of complex relationship with harry like i think dumbledore at the end of the story kind of describes it as like he was both kind of a father and brother figure yes um which i think captures it well but yeah and I love the scene, too, in the movie. It happens more midway, but when they were looking at the family tree. Yeah, because we see the burn marks where Sirius's mother, like, disowned parts of their family because mm-hmm. they didn't, they either, like, married someone who wasn't of pure blood status or they didn't live up to, like, this black family legacy. Yeah. You know, and you just see, like, how toxic it was for him growing up and, like, how... This place is full of, like, terrible memories for him. <laughs> yeah, and now he's trapped there. Yeah, plus there's a house elf that, like, completely resents him, and, like, he resents the house elf, and they're, like, trapped in this house together. <laughs> it's like a horror film, honestly. It's really terrible. <laughs> I do appreciate, though, um, the hippogriff yes. continuously, like... Buckbeak. Buckbeak, like, books never forgot Buckbeak. Yes. Keeps showing up. And it's about time now for Harry's trial, Um, for doing a little bit of magic outside of school. And we just mentioned this before, but like they take him into like the dungeon trial room. (laughs) They have like a a full court of like all these people. I just want to say, first of all, I really love the design of the Ministry of Magic in the film. Yeah. Uh, In the book, there are some interesting qualities to it, but like the dungeons, for example, where the trial occurs are just kind of described as being like stone with torches and kind of, you know, old feeling. But I really love in the film, it's kind of this like black tile. Yes. There's kind of an ominous quality to it. Mm -hmm. I love the elevators that go in different directions. Yeah. Um, it feels the fireplaces where people come out. Yeah, yeah, it's all really well designed. 
And I like that, um, you know, because we'll return to this uh, set in a later movie. Yeah. Um, so I appreciate how much thought went into it. It really feels like a part of the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in this trial, Harry is cleared of all charges because Dumbledore shows up and helps him. And, you know, they have Mrs. Fig, you know, witness yeah. to what happened. But again, I just want to bring up the theme that we talked about a lot in the third episode of like justice and like how does justice in the wizarding world work? Because, you know, it seems like a lot of adults, like a lot of adults <laughs> are totally fine with everything that's happening. And it's not until Dumbledore gets there that yeah. like Harry is kind of saved. And like, what if Dumbledore wasn't there? And what about other kids who don't have Dumbledore kind of watching over them all the time yeah. who aren't as important as Harry. I mean, to be fair, like our uh, court system in the U.S. is oh, yeah. super fucked up too. Like there's so many problems about like, you know, you're guaranteed a lawyer, but not a good lawyer. Yeah. And, like, well, and we talked about like, so you get sent to Az- Azkaban if you're like a dark wizard, mm-hmm. but like also you get sent to Azkaban for like tax, other stuff. Tax evasion. Like, tax fraud? <laughs> like what? <laughs> <laughs> just yeah, well, surrounded what is by the dementors. Line? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It seems like the the wise and maggot, the. Wi- <laughs> we don't wiz- know how to g- say it. Yeah, I don't. I was a maggot. Was a The group of wizards who are trying Harry clearly are some kind of part of this system. But it is very interesting, though, because like they're clearly like pulling so much shit. And it feels so realistic in, like, a politics way. Yeah. Like, they move up the time of the trial. Mm -hmm. They instead, because originally the book is more specific. It was supposed to be, like, in someone's office. Yeah. Kind of like a meeting. Yeah. And then suddenly it turns into this trial. And, like, the theater of it all Mm -hmm. felt so real in a way. Like, clearly this is all just being put on as a show. Yeah. And tying into this, the reason this is all happening is because Fudge the Minister of Magic and the whole ministry is denying the fact that Voldemort has returned. And Harry and Dumbledore are telling people, hey, he's back. Like, it's real. You don't want to face it. And Fudge is like so just his head in the sand and refusing to believe this, that he's trying to like take down a child. Yeah. He's literally like, oh, if we get this child expelled, then he won't bother. That everything will be fine. Yeah. Look. I think when I first read this book, it almost didn't make sense to me. It almost seemed silly. Yeah. Like, I was like, why would Fudge... Why wouldn't they believe it? Yeah, why would they refuse to believe it? What does he gain from not at least taking this threat seriously? Like, certainly, he should at least look into it, wouldn't you? Right? Um, This book hits different in 2020. It really does. And even though the themes are heavy, I really do feel like this was like kind of hitting me in an an emotional place and it didn't necessarily make me upset it just made me like kind of think um because i think this book does show a good portrayal of people in power abusing it yeah people in power not having the people's best interests at heart at all no and in fact doing things to like hurt people it's all about just like maintaining the illusion of structure and peace and power over actually protecting people And I mean, obviously, a lot of shit went down across the world with uh, COVID spreading. But here in the U.S., like, I think we got a real dose of seeing how our government leaders can just turn a blind eye to a looming threat, ignore it, 
ignore the problems and warning signs, pretend everything's fine. Try to discredit the people that are trying to warn about it and do something. I mean, everything that happened last year and is continuing to happen is just so relevant when reading this book. And like what seemed silly, I think, when I first read this book, I'm like, holy fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Like, this is real. People will do this. Well, and I think, too, it comes from being a child and thinking naively that the why would people do this? You know, it doesn't make sense. You expect people to like do the right thing and to care. And then you get older and you're like, ha. (laughs) (laughs) So Harry is cleared of all charges thanks to Dumbledore. But... I have to mention now, because we get a different Dumbledore, right? Yes, yes. And he, in, in, at least Michael Gambon's Dumbledore, who's Dumbledore from the third movie on. Yeah. We talked about in the third movie, we've renamed him to yes. Dumbledumb. Yes, he's instead pl- of Dumblecoy. Yeah, instead of Dumblecoy, he's Dumbledumb. Because he's just like, not really dumb, but playing dumb. Yes. You know, he's kind of like, I don't know. like who, uh, mm. <laughs> If only I had a time turner. Huh? Yeah, yeah where, <laughs> where, where would you get that? Um, and then in the fourth film, we coined the term uh, Dumbledun. Yes. Because he's just... He was just so done with everything. Sick and tired. Yelling at Harry about the Goblet of Fire. It's not even rage. Because people think about that one scene. He's just like done exasperated. Yeah. Uh, which leads us to this one. And actually, we had a uh, email from, from our a, patron, AJ. Yeah. From a listener and, and patron suggesting this, which we had already thought of this. And we we're like, oh, well, this is perfect then. Yeah. It's Dumble Dodge. Yes. Because he's dodging all over the place. He's just ignoring Harry and <laughs> disappearing around corners and just like avoiding eye contact. He's the absent father of this book. He is. So uh, this film's uh, unique specific Dumbledore is Dumble Dodge. Dumble Dodge. Dumble Dodge. Let's uh, go back to Hogwarts. Yeah. Harry is now free to go back to Hogwarts. Gets on that train. Yep. And I think pretty quickly, especially in the movie... A few key characters become more prominent, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, Neville, Ginny, and the introduction in this story of Luna Lovegood. Yeah. And I really like this. I like that we're expanding the circle a bit of Harry's like trusted people. Um, And Neville's been like a constant like side person, but he gets a little bit more attention in this movie. You know, Ginny's kind of always been in the background, but she has a more prominent role here. And we meet Luna Lovegood, who, you know, is just like such a bizarre but kind of sweet person. I love Luna as a character (laughs) so much. I think a lot of people do. Yeah. Um, Yeah, she's just kind of like so spacey in a way and Mm -hmm. just like so nonchalant about how she talks about things. But is very loyal and kind. Yeah, there's so many moments of her being like very genuine and kind and like Harry feeling almost like... A connection with her. Yeah, almost more so sometimes than even Hermione or Ron. Mm -hmm. So I I really love her character and the actress who plays her is spot on. She's so good. Yeah, and we also get the the Thestrals here, Mm -hmm. which are the horses that are pulling the carriages, which until now... Harry hasn't been able to see them and now he can we find out um later on that you can see them if you've seen someone die which is pretty dark I think I mean okay a couple things (laughs) (laughs) like couldn't they just enchant the carts to move why do they have the Thestrals because let's say you get like some timid first year there who happen to have seen death and like the first thing they see coming to Hogwarts is like a skeletal horse yeah I mean I guess they go across the water the first year yeah that's Um, true so they might not actually like see them with their own eyes but it just seems like (laughs) 
I don't know. I like the idea of the creature. I'm just questioning why are they the ones pulling the carts? (laughs) (laughs) I agree. It is confusing. And we find out that Luna actually saw her mother die when she was like nine. Um, so, you know, she can sympathize a bit with Harry losing someone. It was quite horrific, as she says <laughs> in, in the story, which I really love. Yeah. Yeah. So school's beginning. And this is the year of the owls. Yes. The OWL, Ordinary Wizarding Level Examination. Yes. And this is a huge, huge part of the book. It is part of the movie, but not as much. Um This, in their fifth year, they have to take this test at the end of the year. And this test will actually determine the course of their future because it'll determine what, um, like whatever result they get in these tests will determine if they can take these classes for the next two years. And then those classes will determine like what career they can take. So like, it's really interesting. Like they have career consultations with their heads of houses. At one point there's like brochures on different careers and stuff. There's like so much homework. Like the workload is discussed a lot in the book where Harry, Hermione and Ron are like furiously trying to study and also get all the work done that they have to do this year. Oh my God. In between like, Quidditch and like I know uh, Dumbledore's army shit and like what Hagrid has them do and I'm just like Harry like come on like take some you time yeah you need it (laughs) I just think that this is kind of interesting and sort of brings us back into like this is school like yes it's a magic school but it's school and it kind of grounds us in that a little bit more I also like it shining a little bit of light on like how this how Hogwarts actually operates as a school yeah in terms of like Okay, so like the first five years are kind of like high school in a way, ending with the SATs, which are these owls. Mm -hmm. And then the next two years are kind of a little bit more like college where you're kind of more... Studying what you want to do for your career. Yeah, and there may be additional schooling after. Like Harry finds out if he wants to be an Mm RR, he has to take like more, which I don't know where that would happen. Yeah. But he has to have like a couple more years of education. But Mm -hmm. I'm like... Okay, like it's interesting. And they have their newts that they take at the end of seventh year, seventh year. So I kind of liked getting a little bit more uh, fleshed out look at Hogwarts, how it operates. I agree. Um, So this is a very important school academically. So it's a great time to introduce a terrible teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Professor Umbridge. Umbridge, the new defense against the dark arts teacher. Can I say, Ian, has there ever been... A better villain. Oh my god. Someone that you just hate so much, so deeply. In so many ways. And, yeah. And it's so great, and I love this because, you know, obviously you have the big looming threat of Voldemort. Yeah. But I love that this story gives us like uh a more direct villain yeah. in this story. And I also with more love, like specific consequences to Harry. Yeah, and I love the fact too that like um She's not like a subvillain of Voldemort. She has nothing to do with Voldemort. She is a bureaucrat. Yeah. And like she is sadistic in a way, I think. And like not just the representation of the ministry interfering, but yeah, I, I, I just appreciate that she represents something else entirely. Yeah. And that you will run into people like this. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like there's these big bads like Voldemort who just is evil for no reason. Um, <laughs> it's his calling. But this is so much more realistic. Like someone that is just like 
a sadist, basically. Yeah. You know, and like we were saying earlier about Dudley, just like to hurt people that are weaker than them. Yeah. And like assert that power and it makes them feel more dominant. She she reminds me a lot of like Nurse Ratched. Yeah. From One Flew Over to the Cuckoo's Nest. And like, mm-hmm. not just, you know, because they're both women, but like them uh, having a almost sadistic control of a specific uh, group. environment and yeah. group. And kind of presenting themselves as being very polite Mm -hmm. and very, like, orderly. Um, But there's this quality to them underneath that that seems sadistic and almost evil. I agree. And so in their classes, she is refusing to teach them actual defensive spells. So they're only reading a book, and she's telling them that it's going to be enough to pass their test. (laughs) And I really love that Hermione is really upset about this. Yeah. For many reasons. One, because Hermione loves to learn and her learning is actually being thwarted. Like she is smart enough to know that you can't learn everything from books and that you need actual practice in order to master these spells. So like for one, her education is being denied her and that pisses her off. And for two, she knows that they'll have to use these spells in the real world. She knows that Voldemort's back. She knows that there are Death Eaters and Dark Wizards out there that they'll need to defend themselves against. And she's also the most attuned to, um, like, language. especially like like, agenda. Yeah, like, um, specific, like, government language where she's like it's not what they're saying it's what they're not saying and mm-hmm. harry and ron are like can you elaborate they're can like you- oh what <laughs> <laughs> can you translate this for us hermione we're not getting it she's like oh my god listen they're not going to teach us anything this year and yeah also this being just a really good criticism of um when schools aren't properly um when there's no proper oversight to schools yeah because i know here in the u.s like I, I don't want to say schools shouldn't have government oversight, but like when it just becomes about taking tests yeah. for the test results and like you're only learning to answer questions, yeah. you know, like she's like, eh, you just need to answer these questions. You, don't, I don't care about you actually having to apply this in real life. Yeah. It's just about checking off the right boxes. Yeah. Which is really stupid. And I love every time Hermione like dissents in the class. And of course, Harry is upset too, because he's literally like, we need to know this. Like, like, I needed those spells when I fought Voldemort. Yeah. Like, and, you know, she is so, like, angry at him for bringing this up and is fully on board and is probably the architect of the ministry's, like, denial of Voldemort's presence and, you know, trying to, like, keep Harry silent and yeah. gives him detention, a week of detention right away. And we get this horrible scene in both the book and the movie of him you know, writing with this quill, I must not tell lies and it appearing on his hand and him like basically writing it into his hand, which is torture. <laughs> yeah, I I kind of really loved this idea. I almost wish the book like brought, brought this up a little bit more. But the idea of like, I must not tell lies and how that's almost instilling him this like anger and like, I'm not telling lies. And yeah. it almost being like, you're almost reinforcing what I am doing already. Like yeah. I'm not telling lies. I'm going to continue not to tell lies. Yeah. And it being like etched into his skin is almost like reinforcing a his, rallying cry kind of yeah. to a degree. So I kind of liked the, the irony of that almost. Mm-hmm. Um, also we just have to say the Harry Potter films have such impeccable casting. Yes. 
so fantastic. And Imelda Staunton, who plays uh, Umbridge in this film, is just one of those. Oh, my God. It's one of those casting choices where as you read the book later, that's who you picture. You can only see her. Yeah. And similarly, uh, Bellatrix. I'm sorry. Oh, um, Helena Bonham Carter. Helena Bonham Carter (laughs) was also cast in this film. Another character that you're like, I can't picture anyone else because she's so perfect for that role. Yeah, I agree. And so the students, some of the students are also suspicious of Harry this year. Yeah. And we get a scene in particular with Seamus where he kind of like says that Harry is being stupid. And I like in the movie. Harry's like, your mom is stupid. (laughs) I like in the movie, it's kind of like the whole common room. And Ron kind of steps up and like defends him, which I really appreciated. And there's like similar scenes where other people in classes like, kind of are shitting on him and other students like stand up and defend him like you know Neville and like Luna and Ernie I think as well and Umbridge is immediately kind of like doing a lot of things at the school because she's sent there from the ministry to basically get Hogwarts in line and keep Dumbledore in line and she is first like inspecting the teachers and then there are other like educational decrees she becomes the high inquisitor and so it's just kind of like a lot of power that she has at the school there's a really great scene in the movie oh yeah of her mcgonagall and they're on the steps talking and kind of arguing and like great just um blocking and use of like visuals where like McGonagall takes a step up as she, you know, challenges Umbridge and then Umbridge steps up and then eventually McGonagall steps down when she's kind of brought down. Yeah. It's just good visually, I think. Yeah. And there's some funny scenes in the movie of her inspecting the different teachers. (laughs) Um, Trelawney, she like measures Flitwick, which I was like, this is what? What are you what are you doing? Yeah, I think it makes more sense in the book context because you know that she hates uh, anything that's basically not human directly. Yeah, not fully human. Yeah. yeah. So her measuring him, I think, is just because he's part whatever or a... What? What is he... I don't know. I don't know either. I don't think they ever say. Huh. Okay. And I don't know if he's only short in the movies or if he's also short in the books, but because I don't remember. I don't either now that you mention it. <laughs> There's too many details to remember. I'm just going to say it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there is... I, I want to say in the movie, there's an amazing scene where she's inspecting Snape. Oh, my God. It's so funny. <laughs> like, Alan Rickman's <laughs> delivery of lines, specifically in this movie, is so good when she's like, oh, but you didn't get the defense against the dark arts position, did you? And his just reply of, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> And then, like, <laughs> smacking Ron over the head, which, like, harkens back to him smacking them over the head in a previous movie as well. Yes, yeah, in the fourth one, I think. And I just want to read a section from the book, which is the scene where Umbridge is inspecting McGonagall's class, because McGonagall is just, like, not having it. All right, I'm going to read. <clears throat> said Professor Umbridge. Yes, said Professor McGonagall, turning round, her eyebrows so close together they seem to form one long, severe line. I was just wondering, Professor, whether you received my note telling you of the date and time of your inspect. Obviously, I received it, or I would have asked you what you are doing in my classroom, said Professor McGonagall, turning her back firmly on Professor Umbridge. Many of the students exchanged looks of glee. As I was saying, today we shall be practicing the altogether more difficult vanishment of mice. Now, the vanishing spell... 
I wonder, said Professor McGonagall in cold fury, turning on Professor Umbridge, how you expect to gain an idea of my usual teaching methods if you continue to interrupt me. You see, I do not generally permit people to talk when I am talking. (laughs) Professor Umbridge looked as though she had just been slapped in the face. (laughs) I just like love that scene so much. I love and it just captures when like you're a kid and you're watching like two adults like showdown kind of sparring but like in a <laughs> situation that's like they're trying to be civil and you're just like oh shit is this happening is this going down right now <laughs> <laughs> McGonagall is just perfect this in is this McGonagall's book. book yeah I'm just gonna say it and we might have some other things come up either in the episode or in lightning round from her but like I just love her in this because she is just like listen I am not here for your bullshit. I'm here to teach these students. I'm here to like take care of them and make sure they're doing well. And I just want to say, we love you, Professor McGonagall. (laughs) You are amazing. Yes. uh, Wonderful. Uh, So essentially, because they're not being taught real defense against the dark arts, Hermione has the great idea. Hermione's idea. It's Hermione's idea that Harry should teach a group of kids how to actually uh, use spells uh, and defend themselves against the dark arts. Yeah. And she orchestrates the whole like meetup. She gets everybody together. Mm-hmm. She even like talks for Harry because Harry's like <laughs> too upset and like angry. Yeah. He's going through some stuff. I get it. But like she's kind of like very orchestrating, goading him into this. And I think she's so spot on because Harry is a natural teacher. And, you know, these students are hungry for knowledge and there's plenty plenty of kids who maybe don't fully believe Harry, but at least want to learn. And so they're on board for this group. Yeah. And so this and they decide to call it Dumbledore's army, just ironically, because they know that's what the ministry's afraid of. Yeah. They discover or Neville discovers the room of requirements, Mm -hmm. which is our first Look at this room. Yes. In the book, it's uh, Dobby who tells. That's right. It it. is Dobby. I Mm -hmm. forget. Uh In the film, it is uh, it's Neville who discovers it. And they use this as their space to practice. I love the design of it in the film. With the wall of the mirrors surrounding them. Mm -hmm. And the pillars that kind of just end. Like they don't actually connect to the floor. They kind of are above their heads. It's really interesting. It's a cool set. And I really like the montage in the movie where it shows them all practicing and kind of intercutting it with scenes of Umbridge being a shit. Yeah. And kind of this being like their way, their outlet. You know what I mean? This is the way that Harry can feel like he's actually doing something and making a difference because I think those feelings of powerlessness Mm -hmm. in the face of like what Umbridge is doing is so strong, not just in Harry, but in the other students as well. And like, this is their opportunity to actually do something to make a difference. Yeah, for sure. And I just, even Hermione is like excited to be like rule breaking and everything. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The montage is really good. And it's actually one of the things I think about with this movie is it tells a lot of the story in varying montages. Yeah. To varying degrees. Like um, the one montage of uh, Umbridge inspecting the teachers. Yes. You're just getting little snippets of dialogue, little, um, you know, funny lines intercut with other things. It's much more quick. Mm-hmm. And that being intercut with like the hanging of the proclamations. decrees. The decrees on the wall, which is a great visual, visual and gag with Filch. Um, but the... <laughs> Defense Against the Dark Arts, um, the Dumbledore's Army montage, it's a little bit more like small scenes. You know what I mean? Like Ron going against Hermione. Yes. Harry helping Cho. 
Um, Neville practicing. Yeah, intercut with Filch trying to infiltrate um, the class with Malfoy's help and everything. So, like, it's, it is it is a montage, but it feels, like, a little more in-depth, like, a little more fleshed out. Yeah, it does feel like mini scenes happening. Yeah, and I think it's very effective overall. It is really effective. It gets, like, a vibe across. That yeah. You, about, like, how the students are feeling, what the atmosphere of the school is. And I do want to draw attention to Neville here, and I really love that he's such a big part of this story, especially in the book, because... Um, Harry talks about how dedicated Neville is to learning mm-hmm. and how much he has improved and how out of all of the people in the Dumbledore's army group, he's actually improved the most. Yeah, I love this too. I think the movie does it well. And I love the book addressing it. My only beef is the end confrontation. Neville is still kind of painted as being like, Dopey. Dopey and kind of floundering yeah. and like maybe a little helpful, but almost equally unhelpful. Yeah, I agree. I, I kind of was bothered by like, and I mean, there's still going to be more growth in his character in the series. Like yeah. it's not ending here, but I wish he was like a little bit more. Less of a comedic character at the end. Yeah. I agree with yeah. you the way he's portrayed in the in the book. But, you know, I want to mention like we found out in one of the other books that you know, Neville's parents were tortured into insanity by Mm -hmm. Bellatrix and Bellatrix and some other Death Eaters escape during um, this year. And Neville like doesn't really comment on it. He just is sort of like, all right, I got to like get ready basically. And is just preparing himself. And, you know, there's a scene in like St. Mungo's hospital later on where we see Neville's parents and like how sad it is that this has happened and that he's had to grow up this way. And I'm just like, Neville is such a good character. And I really wish we had a little more of him. I agree. And I love um, just seeing him grow kind of from being the comedic relief, like you said, to a more fleshed out character, more well-rounded and more heroic, Mm -hmm. um, kind of subverting your initial uh, impression of him. Yeah. And... So Umbridge's like inspections of the teachers eventually results in Trelawney getting fired. Yes. In a very in a very great scene where Umbridge is clearly making it like a public. Yeah, she wants ordeal. to shame her. Yeah. And uh Emma Thompson as uh Trelawney yes. is so good. I still I look at her and I don't see Emma Thompson. <laughs> I can't see it. I know. She looks Totally unrecognizable. But I love, again, shout out to McGonagall in this scene coming in. And like, you know, McGonagall probably doesn't even like Trelawney. You know what I mean? I know. She probably thinks she's a hack, but like she sees that she is being humiliated and that Trelawney is like weeping and is just so upset and is like goes to comfort her immediately. And the thing I really love, too, is that like I I sometimes have moments like this watching a movie and I had this in this scene where you suddenly realize, like, wow, I'm watching a scene of, like, all-female characters right now. Yeah. Who are all very different, like, they're... Uh, different motivations. Yeah, their conflicts are just, like, surrounding the plot, like, not, you know, and just how um, J.K. Rowling has written a lot of really great female characters yeah. in this series. And, like, you know, this was a scene where I'm like, oh, cool, like, 
it doesn't feel like any kind of forced thing. No, no. And Dumbledore comes in and basically saves Trelawney from being kicked out of Hogwarts. She's still fired, but she doesn't have to like find a place to live. Like she's not like thrown out onto the street, um, which is really kind. And of course he like dodges out of the, out of Harry's way immediately (laughs) again. Yeah. (laughs) We almost almost called him Dumble Dip as well. I do. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no. I was just going to say he does before he leaves in the book anyway. Let Umbridge know that he hired a centaur to replace uh, Trelawney as a divination teacher. Ferenz. Ferenz, which I had totally forgotten about this part of the book. There were a lot of things I forgot about this book, uh, considering I haven't read it till it first came out Mm -hmm. since it first came out. Uh, And Ferenz coming back was part of that. Something else I just wanted to say is that I really do appreciate the book's consistent portrayal of Dumbledore. Yeah. I just love how he's always super kind to the point of it being like a middle finger. Yeah. You know, he's just always the most polite that he can possibly be. And I think in the movies that would maybe be a little boring. Like I like Michael Gambon being a little bit more stern, a little more intense at points. Um, But I, I do love in the book, just him being kind to the 11th, degree and just kind of yeah like rubbing it in umbridge's face (laughs) yeah 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 so harry has been having uh weird dreams all year about like a mysterious corridor going to a door that he's not sure about yeah um but then this kind of culminates in one night when he dreams that he is a snake on the ground and uh ron's dad is there and like the snake slash Harry attacks him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this is really well done in the film. Like yeah. the kind of striking camera movement and stuff is like really good. Yeah. Um, but Harry knows that this wasn't just a dream. Something like really happened. Mm-hmm. And he goes to Dumbledore and kind of like tells him everything. And Dumbledore kind of suddenly is like um, commanding this. Like he has all these portraits of yeah. headmasters in his office that I love that have other portraits elsewhere that he's commanding and telling them to go and inform people and everything. In the book, when Harry is about to leave, he does look at Dumbledore and has this like feeling of like anger. Yeah. And, like Intense rage. Uh, in the film, though, I love how Harry kind of has this moment where he screams at Dumbledore, look at me. Yes, because he's even dodging Harry's eye. As well as his physical presence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I just love that. And everyone's kind of startled by this. Yeah. Uh, and Harry's like, "What? what's happening to me? Mm-hmm. Um, but luckily, uh, they were quick enough to save Arthur. Yeah. I read that J.K. Rowling had actually considered killing him. Oh, my God. In this book. <laughs> I love Arthur Weasley. He's I just love all the Weasleys. Well, I know. almost all the almost Weasleys. Almost all the Weasleys. We'll get there. <laughs> um, but yeah, Arthur's just such a great character, and I'm I'm glad that he survived the snake attack. Yeah, and this leads to them having Christmas at um Sirius's place, the Order of the Phoenix headquarters. So like Sirius is really excited because they're all like hanging out yeah. with him for Christmas, and he's like, I've been so lonely. <laughs> He's like, let me decorate. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this was a really, I really liked this setup. for, mm-hmm. And even Hermione, like, doesn't go skiing. Hermione ditches her parents because she doesn't care about them, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm worried about that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, decides to join uh, Ron and Harry for Christmas. Um, but it's a really sweet scene. Yeah. And I just want to talk about the Weasleys in a little more depth because I feel like a lot is going on with them. We get so much more of 
uh, time with them than we usually get in the books because they're part of yeah. the order now. Yeah. Um, Molly. Yeah. Let's talk about first. I think, God, she's such a great character. I love how like she on one hand, she's kind of like a typical nurturing mother. Yeah. Um, But I think it's more than that because she's that way to Harry. Yeah. Someone who isn't her family, but treats Harry like part of the family. Yeah, and she's just such a kind person. Yeah, and so sweet. But also, like, the fact that she and her husband are in the Order clearly shows, like, that they believe in something and yeah. that they're willing to risk their lives and their family because they believe in Dumbledore and they believe in, you know, trying to stop Voldemort. And like, there's a really great scene in the book that I wish that they could have included somehow in the movie where, you know, Molly has been kind of like very strict and kind of overbearing about her kids listening in on the order meetings and not letting Fred and George join the order and all of these things. And you're like, Oh, she's, she's just too much. They need, they want to help. And then, there's this scene where she's trying to get rid of a Boggart, and we know that Boggarts show what you're most afraid of. Yeah. And we see that the Boggart is turning into the corpses of her husband and children and Harry. Yeah. And that that's what she is afraid of. Yeah, and she's... Because she was just going to get rid of this Boggart, and Harry finds her kind of just, like, weeping by it and, like, mm-hmm. unable to, like, cast it away. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's just such a revealing scene... Of Show- what she's going through and like where her intentions are when she's kind of like sometimes frustratingly keeping Harry and everyone else out of the order. Yeah. And just seeing like what's going on with her. It's a very, very impactful scene, I think. And, and I love that there she flushes out Molly in that way. Yeah. And like she clearly understands what's at stake here. Yeah. And what her family is in danger of. And clearly it's true because Arthur almost dies in the snake attack. <laughs> I know. Um, and Molly is also dealing with very directly her one son, Percy. Ugh. Fucking Percy. Fucking Percy, who was a shit this whole time, um, but has become the biggest shit in this book. He sides with the ministry over his family, refuses to believe that Voldemort is back, says that Dumbledore is crazy, doesn't believe Harry, who he's essentially like kind of grown up with. Yeah. And has had in his life for quite some time and doesn't visit his dad in the hospital when he almost dies. Yeah, I'm very, I'm almost like mixed on that in the book. Cause yeah. I'm like, is that too far? Is that like no longer believable that he would? I don't visit? know if you could come back from that. No. And I'm very curious what, cause this is another kind of subplot that I don't remember at all from the books. Yeah. And I'm very curious what happens to Percy if he does come back at all I almost don't think he can at this point but like I do think it's interesting to have one of the Weasley children yeah kind of go for power and Mm -hmm. kind of like turn their back on their family and look I mean like I think a lot of times families are toxic and you need to separate yourselves from them I'm not saying like oh family is everything no no but like clearly Percy is in the wrong. <laughs> yeah, clearly Percy <laughs> is just a dick. Also, he sends back his Christmas sweater. How <laughs> dare he? I know. I would love a Christmas sweater from Mrs. Weasley. <laughs> I know. That makes me almost more angry than him not visiting his dad <laughs> is sending the sweater back. Let's talk about Fred and George, too, because this is their seventh year. They have the money that Harry gave them from the Triwizard Tournament, and they're all set. They want to open their own joke shop yeah i love this i love, I love this. this plot too yeah like, i love that fred and george despite being like such jokesters 
and kind of slackers in a way and being so like mischievous in school and everything that like deep down they kind of have this like entrepreneurial drive yes and like a passion for something that they like they know what they want to do yeah and they're like doing it yeah they're like so many people who drop out of school and then end up being wildly successful like they kind of have their own drive and sometimes like education isn't like the best for people. Yeah. It's not always a measure of success, like how well you do in school. Yeah. And I love that they're like, they have all these, you know, snacks that make you sick to get out of school. (laughs) Like, and they're trying to like sell them in the common room. And, you know, honestly, they're extremely talented. And I love that just because they're not good at school doesn't mean that they don't, they're not smart. Yeah. And Hermione's even like, wow, that's actually really ingenious. Yeah. And there's like, a part where they like create like a swamp on like a floor <laughs> yeah. of Hogwarts and like eventually they get rid of it. But like Professor Flitwick like ropes off like a corner of it to like preserve. Yeah. Because he's like, it was just like a really good bit of magic and he kind of admires that. Yeah. I love that. I do too. And like the fact that they're only in their seventh year at school just to like kind of do all this research yeah. like, on what kids are into. <laughs> yeah. And what will like, sell. Yeah. They're like, this is like prime time to like interview kids and like know what the kids are into. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Let's talk about Ginny too, because I love that she is kind of coming into her own in this book. Me too. Uh, just the fact that she's become, and even Ron is like, Ron finds out she's dating. I forget who. Michael Cormer? Corner? Something like that. And Ron is like, is that why she's talking this year? (laughs) (laughs) To you, Harry. (laughs) Yeah. And just being like more direct, I think. Yeah. And I love this for Ginny, just her being very direct with people and like. With Harry. Especially with Harry. Mm -hmm. And just being like, Harry, fucking get out of your own head for two seconds. There's a great scene where Harry around Christmas time is worried that Voldemort is possessing him. Yeah. And he's like isolating himself from the Weasleys. And Ginny and Ron and Hermione like end up confronting him. And Ginny says something like, well, you could have asked me. I'm the only one here who's actually been possessed by Voldemort. And you're like, oh, (laughs) and Harry's like, oh, I forgot. And I'm like, yeah, it's not all about you, Harry. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Her just not being afraid of like hurting Harry's feelings. Like Harry needs that. Yes. In a friend or more. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, yeah, I like seeing Ginny's personality coming out a little mm-hmm. bit more in this book. And let's talk about Ron, too, because he actually has a lot going on in this book, even though it's not included in the movie. Um. He and Hermione become prefix, so he has a little bit more responsibility. And then he joins the Quidditch team. Yeah. And I loved this because um, it made Quidditch interesting again. Yes. Because in the first book, it's kind of interesting. It is interesting because it's yeah. your introduction. Then in the second book, Malfoy joins Slytherin. So that adds a new element. Mm-hmm. Quidditch was the most boring, I thought, in the third book. I agree. Because there was a lot of time spent on it, but it was just like, all right. For what purpose? Yeah. It's just, it's more Quidditch. Mm-hmm. Um. But this time with Ron joining the team and like he's really bad at it at first and like doesn't have a lot of confidence in it. And you're reading it. The Quidditch match is excited. Like, please, like you just want Ron to do well. Yeah. And you want to see him come into his own. Mm -hmm. So I like that it's not only a Ron specific storyline, but also it makes the Quidditch matches interesting again. Yeah. And of course, Ron does get his moment, even though we don't get to see it. Cause <laughs> I know Harry and Hermione are like let off by Hagrid 
in this moment. So they don't see Ron do super well, but he does kind of get that like appreciation. They're able to win the house uh, cup or not the house cup, the, the Quidditch, Quidditch cup. cup. Yeah. yeah. The Quidditch cup. Um, and I just love this, love this for Ron that he gets this moment. Yeah. I feel like Ron is often, I don't know. Hermione usually has her own tasks and endeavors that she takes on in stories and yeah. little like moments. But like, I feel like Ron is often kind of sidelined and doesn't get to do as much like on his Definitely. own, his own defining moments. And like, I liked that this book gave him that. Um, it's also interesting too. Cause like this movie completely abandoned Quidditch. It didn't have any Quidditch in it. Yeah. Um, but it actually in the following movie is when Ron joins the Quidditch team. Yeah. So that's the only thing I can think of like this where one movie picks up a subplot from a previous book. From a previous book that didn't include it. Yeah. That'll be interesting to talk about when we get to that episode. Yeah, and like I don't like I don't know if Ron and Quidditch have any significance in the next book or if it's all just pulling from this one or mm-hmm. not. Also Fred, George, and Harry are banned from Quidditch by Umbridge. Because <laughs> Harry physically assaulted Malfoy, which she <laughs> fucking deserved. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but once again, just Umbridge using any chance she can take to exert her power. I agree. Um, we have to talk about Cho Chang, though. Cho Chang. First off, the name. Not a great name. Not a great name. I think uh, J.K. Rowling has many faults, one of them being that she's... Not always the best at portraying characters of my different minorities. Yeah, you know, I think because characters in the, these books have such wacky names. Yeah, like Neville Longbottom and like even Weasley and like uh, they just a lot of goofy names. Uh, the alliteration of Cho Chang, I think she thinks is supposed to be kind of funny, but it's just kind of racist. A kind of <laughs> stereotypical name in a lot of ways, and it's like. When you have a character in the Harry Potter universe where everyone has weird names and hers is just kind of like generically Asian. It's like "Mm." (laughs) (laughs) not the best, but their relationship is interesting because Harry, who kind of liked her in the last book and movie, still likes her. And it seems like she's kind of into Harry this year. And but she's still dealing with the fact that her last boyfriend, Cedric, was killed, was murdered. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is kind of cool because she does like Harry because you could tell that maybe she kind of liked Harry before. Yeah. But she also is sort of drawn to Harry because of his connection to Cedric. Yeah. And there's there's kind of a mixture in the book of Cho's representation that I'm mixed <laughs> mixed on this mixture. Yeah. Because um, on one hand, Cho seems to be reaching out to Harry wanting to talk about Cedric. Like, she's still processing it, I think. Yeah. And... I imagine she knows that Harry is too, mm-hmm. and I think wants to try to connect on that level. Um, but Harry just doesn't seem to be interested in that at all and is kind of a dick about it. Well, and another symptom of PTSD is like avoiding talking about it. Yeah. Um. So I don't think Harry wants to talk about it. Like it's too yeah. traumatic for him. Whereas Cho is dealing not with like the traumaticness of the event but just with grief in general so she wants to like find closure and like talk about it with someone who is there so i think they they want different things um and their relationship is kind of like them coming together having a good moment and then having like a fight and like a disagreement and then them coming back together and then like having another fight and i just i just want to read like a section from the book because i felt like it was so funny and it just like captured like 
I don't know, teenage relationships. Yeah. So she was waiting for him a little to the side of the oak front doors, looking very pretty with her hair tied back in a long ponytail. Harry's feet seemed to be too big for his body as he walked toward her, and he was suddenly horribly aware of his arms and how stupid they looked swinging at his side. <laughs> it's just I like love a that. line, but like, it's so real. Suddenly you're like, well, how do I move my arms? What do I, I do with my arms? <laughs> I remember that line. That was so funny. Yeah, and Harry just being like, oh my God, now we're going to have to like talk, and what are we going to talk about? And like, yeah. the awkwardness of it, and ultimately, because the other representation of Cho is just like sometimes she comes across as just being like too emotional. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how to describe it without sounding critical of Cho. Um, but the book almost feels critical of Cho at points, like yeah. her just being kind of like erratic mm-hmm. or overly jealous. You know, on one hand, I think it's so relevant in ways that like their relationship didn't it just like didn't work out yeah and that's so high school that like you finally get to date a person you're interested in you're like oh we don't have anything in common (laughs) (laughs) like what do we even what do i do now what do we even talk about yeah and it just like kind of falling apart completely Mm -hmm. um so i don't know i wish it had either leaned more into the fact that she wanted to talk about Cedric and connect on that level, and Harry kind of rejected that, and that making the relationship fall apart. Yeah. Or, or just the high schoolness of or it. Or just the high schoolness of it. <laughs> um, I wish it had been maybe either one or the other. Yeah, I agree. And the movie is sort of interesting the way that their relationship ends, because in the movie, she's the one who reveals the um, Dumbledore's army group to yeah. Umbridge. And, like, the whole group kind of shuns her and Harry shuns her, only to find out later that, like, she confessed to it under truth serum. She was drugged? Yeah, she was literally drugged. Yeah, and then, but, like, what is done with that info? We never find out. There isn't really a wrap-up. In the book, they kind of have their final falling out when it's actually Cho's friend who goes to Umbridge to tattle on the group, and Harry is like, well, she shouldn't have done that. And Cho, and they like just have a fight over it. Yeah. And Harry sees her later and is kind of like, I'm fine with this. Let's just end this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's not even like a discussion about it, which I kind of love. Yeah. But yeah, her. there's a lot more of their relationship in the book that I found very funny and interesting and so relevant to high school. Yes. Let's go to Snape now and... Occlumency. Occlumency. I think. I think Occlumency? That's... I don't know how to say it. I don't know the... Pronounce it. I, I I know it better than the wise and gamut. Was it Wasn't Yeah, Harry has to have one on lesson, one on one lessons with Snape. Yeah, and he's trying to teach him to protect his mind from Voldemort, um, which was very frustrating because Harry is not really interested in this, and like I know he's just a kid, and I know he's going through a lot, but this is definitely the moments where I was like Harry. Like, I know this guy's a dick, but he's actually trying to teach you something useful. And Hermione keeps being like, are you practicing, Harry? And he's like, yeah. And Hermione keeps being like, I think this is important for you to learn. And Harry's like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. But, okay, to be fair, though, imagine it like this. Someone trying to force a high school kid to practice meditation. (laughs) Yeah. And also the person trying to teach them is someone they hate. (laughs) Like, someone you hate trying to teach you meditation would be, like, the worst Situation, And that's basically what the occlumency lessons are. Yeah. We get a scene, though, where Harry, and it's different in the book and the movie how this happens, but Harry ends up seeing a memory of Snape's past. And we see 
Harry's father, James, Sirius and Lupin and um, Peter, who were the marauders, kind of torturing and bullying Snape when they were kids. Yeah, we just get the briefest of glimpses of this in the film. Yeah. And it's like Harry seems to be kind of shaken by it, but like it's not really addressed or that relevant no snape is upset and is basically ends their lessons from this point yeah. like he's like get the fuck out yeah uh but it, we see more of it obviously in the book and just kind of how arrogant his dad really was he was like wow snape wasn't really that wrong about my dad he was very arrogant yeah this kind of shakes harry and i think this is actually really interesting because it is sort of that idea like Harry never knew his parents so he has idealized them in his head Um, and seeing a more realistic human portrayal of what his dad was like and granted like his dad was 15 um, but is like wow like I don't admire that about my dad I'm not like that and seeing the differences and being like maybe I'm not like my dad yeah and seeing like his mom in the, was also in this dream or yeah. memory and like tries to defend Snape mm-hmm. and seems to really despise James. Yeah. But then Harry's like, but they fucking ended up together. Yeah. Like what the they hell? They got married. <laughs> what happened? And he's kind of just like, how do two people like that mm-hmm. end up together? I do like that he's so shaken that he has to talk to Sirius and like risks um, talking to him and ends up talking with both him and Lupin. And they kind of explain, they're like, I mean, James was kind of a dick, but he, he got better. And it's like, yeah, who, who isn't a bit shitty in high school? So it is sort of explained. (laughs) Um, and Lupin is also sort of like, I could have done more to try to like stop them from doing this. And Sirius kind of takes some blame too. But I like this idea of like, this isn't totally resolved for Harry, but it is sort of like, you know what? My dad wasn't like just the best person in the world. He had faults. I think this is a really good theme in these later Harry Potter books, which is kind of like the realization that the adults that you look up to and respect and idolize even are just are, human, are flawed humans. Yeah. And, and seeing that firsthand is like really interesting. Mm-hmm. I do love the occlumency lessons, though. I just love this dynamic of Harry having to take lessons from Snape. Yes. Putting them together. Snape invading Harry's memories, like especially like his room. Like that's like the worst case scenario for Harry is yeah. Snape just like ha being in his memories. <laughs> of like him kissing Cho. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just love that dynamic a lot. Dumbledore's army is tragically caught, though, by Umbridge eventually. Um, sort of different ways in the book and the movie. But Umbridge grabs Harry, Fudge is there. They're going to try to pin this on Harry, basically. Yeah. And Dumbledore ends up taking the credit for it. And it is Dumbledore's army is the name. (laughs) And he's like, well, it is my name on it. The the scene specifically in the book, I think, is so funny because he's just like, yep, it was my army that I wanted to overthrow the government. And, and Fudge is just like, I knew it. What? Oh, my. Like, he's like both excited and terrified at the same time. And Dumbledore is just like super polite. I know. Again. And we have this great scene where he's like, oh, you think I'm going to come quietly? Like, you have another thing coming. And just kind of 
disappears. I love how flashy and exciting this is with Fox in In, the movie. In the book, he like stuns everyone. (laughs) Like he like quick draws and like takes everyone out. Yeah. Um, But in the movie, it's good too. The way he just explodes in flames. Yeah. I loved in the, this line was in the book too, but I love that Kingsley gives it in the film about Dumbledore's got style. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) He literally like dodges his way again out of a, yeah. Yes. He. Oh my God. The ultimate. <laughs> the ultimate dodge. Dumble dodge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, I just want to mention. Uh, I love the character of Nigel that's in Dumbledore's army. Oh yeah, in the movie. And I was actually like, is this someone from the book that I'm forgetting about or added to the film? And I looked them up on IMDb, and they're only credited uh, credited as Nigel Second Year. <laughs> <laughs> He's kind of, I think, supposed to embody like. Uh, Colin and Trevor Creary. Yeah, Creevy. Creevy, yeah. Uh, he's kind of supposed to represent like that younger. Yeah. Per- but I love that they have like a younger kid mm-hmm. in the group. I really appreciate that. Yeah. And we also in this part are introduced to Hagrid's half-brother, Grop. Grop. The giant. Um, You know, we usually talk about how great Hagrid is. But honestly, in this book and movie... I feel like he is not doing well. He he went a step too far, didn't he? His, yeah. his love and trust of creatures led him to um, kidnap and kind of... Uh, <laughs> imprison? Imprison, yeah. His younger brother. Yeah. It's a little mixed. Gets Harry and Hermione and Ron involved and is like, you have to help take care of him when I'm gone. Um, yeah, I wasn't like a huge fan of this, but I was upset because Umbridge is intent on taking him down and specifically hates him because he is not fully human because he's part giant. Yeah. And there's a scene in the book where she and like a bunch of other people from the ministry come to like, I don't know. Detain or arrest him? Yeah, arrest him? him? I don't know. It's like very unclear, but they're like trying to stun him and like take him by force. And he ends up fleeing and McGonagall comes out to kind of be like, what are you doing? Like, this is not okay. And she's stunned with four stunning spells directly to her chest. And I just want to say that, like, I was really, really, really upset by this because even Madame Pomfrey is like, she could have died. They could have killed her. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a very upsetting scene. Yeah. I really, it, it feels like... I don't know, the escalation of Umbridge's interference in the school, like this is kind of almost the peak of that. And I like appreciated seeing how... How far she's willing to go. And and how something like this begins and Mm -hmm. where it can go, I think is really effective. Um, Yeah. The one thing I wanted to say about Grop is that I do like him in the film more. He's a little more like... I, I don't He's know. He's kind of nicer in the film. Yeah. And I like that Hermione kind of like takes a firm stance with him and he yeah. like likes Hermione. He's very just threatening in the book. And yeah. I like don't know how to feel about him. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, is he? Because like, I don't know. There is some humanity to him in the movie. Like you do like him and he is, yeah. you know, but I don't know in the book. He's just really <laughs> scary. And I'm like, ah. yeah, which is why I'm like very mixed on Hagrid in this book. In this book, I think. Yeah. I'm like, you're really putting them in danger here. This is like not a good thing. <laughs> this is like, kind of a step too far, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. And what are we talking about now? Um, let's talk about the twins and their final, their final hurrah. Yes. 
at Hogwarts. Yeah, and I, I love this, and I love how in the book they're like, well, Dumbledore's gone, and we gotta, like, give Umbridge hell for him. Like, yeah. They're just like, yeah, you know, we've probably got as much out of this year as we could expect to. There was one scene in the film that I particularly want to mention that I loved so much, and after Dumbledore's army gets um, caught, all the students are being punished in... Um, uh, Umbridge's office yeah. or in, you know, just doing, writing the lines. And Harry comes across Fred and George, like comforting, like a first or second year kid. Yeah. Who's like really upset because like they were tortured. Yeah. Um, but I just loved seeing Fred and George being like. Protective. Yeah. yeah protective and comforting towards like this younger student. And yeah. I think we all know what that's like when an older kid kind of like does that for a younger kid when you're a younger kid. Mm-hmm. Um, so I loved that scene. I did like that too. And, and the subsequent line when they were like, you know what, Fred? I don't think our futures lie in academia. Oh yeah, in the world of academic achievement. <laughs> that's yeah, it. Yeah, it's great. And you know, they decide to go out with a bang. It's a little bit different in the book and the film, but we get oh, just great scenes of them just causing mayhem in the school, causing Umbridge to suffer. It's amazing. I loved the film, them disrupting the tests yes. with the fireworks and the way it plays out, the staging of it, Umbridge being chased by the dragon, the dragon out of into the hall where when it blows up, it explodes all of the um, educational decrees. decrees. Yeah. And then they just there's kind of a pause and then they all just come falling down. It's like was really well blocked and staged. I really loved that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I wanted to talk here because I, I think we've kind of addressed the main points of it. But just the theme of in this book of civil disobedience. Yeah, I think is so good. And Pointing out that just because something is the law or that something has been educationally decreed doesn't mean that it's right. Yeah. And I think that's such an important thing to learn because throughout history, you know, in order to make positive and important change, you have to break the rules. Yeah. You know, you have to stand up against people in authority because, you know, progress and social change doesn't happen by people doing nothing. Like you have to do what you can to make a difference. And I love that everyone in the school kind of gets into this mindset, especially after the Weasleys kind of show this big, have this big event. Yeah, It kind of inspires (laughs) other people. And I think it's so true that a big, you know, demonstration or movement can inspire other people too. Yeah. I love that. It's like, you know, shenanigans and pranks, but like it is like causing, you know, it, it is like rebelling. Yeah. And then, of course, you had Dumbledore's army, which was a form of rebellion. Mm-hmm. In the book, uh, Hermione even goes as far as to like get an article about Harry's experience against Voldemort published yeah. in The Quibbler mm-hmm. uh, and her kind of taking on the... Um, the Daily Prophet. Uh, the Daily Prophet. Yeah. It's just kind of like all these examples of ways of like rebelling. Yeah. And especially because as the series goes on, it becomes more about fighting like evil. Yeah. Like directly like fighting. It, yeah. You know what I mean? But I think, and, and not that that isn't um, necessary sometimes, but I think what this book depicts of civil disobedience and kind of rebelling is so much more relevant in what we actually can do and feel capable of in our day-to-day lives. Yeah. What we have 
the power to do. Yeah. yeah. It feels like we can't make a big difference, but we can do small things. Yeah. We don't have a, a figurehead like Voldemort. Well, not quite. It's <laughs> 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 um, but, you know, most of the times what we can do and what we want to do falls more in line of with this, you know, yeah. how do we educate ourselves? How do we get our voices heard? How are we? How do we just irritate the shit out of people that are doing terrible things? Yeah. You know, stand outside their office or their house and like yell so they can't sleep. (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And I just love that like the whole school basically makes Umbridge's life a living hell. Yeah. It just gets, it's such a good example of like nonviolent protest in in such a great way. And I, I feel like this book, I don't know, this book had a, a couple really good themes in it mm-hmm. that were so prevalent and you know i think my problem with the last book in harry potter the goblet of fire was it didn't feel like it was about anything i agree specifically so i was really glad and kind of surprised when reading this book that its themes felt so prevalent especially right now it's so relevant right yeah. now, definitely here we are and we're at In the final act, basically. Yeah. Harry has a vision of Sirius being tortured by Voldemort Mm -hmm. in the Department of Mysteries at the Ministry of Magic. And he immediately is like, okay, this is like what happened with Arthur. Like, we have to go to him. And Dumbledore's not there because he's left. Yeah. Um, And Hermione, once again, is the voice (laughs) of reason or tries to be. Yeah. And even in the book, she basically forecasts exactly what happens. She's like, hey, Harry. Maybe this is a fake illusion planted in your head by Voldemort. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And they try to, like, contact um, Sirius to find out if this is real. In the book, Creature the House Elf tells them that it is real, that Sirius is gone. They are caught by Umbridge basically immediately. (laughs) 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 And not just Harry, Ron, and Hermione, but also Neville, Ginny, and Luna. Yeah, and so... Harry is trying to figure out how to get out of this. Uh, And we see kind of the extent, specifically in the film, of what Umbridge is willing to do. Yeah. Because they're out of truth serum. And so she's going to use the Cruciatus curse against him. Mm -hmm. uh, Which is illegal. Like the most extreme form of torture in the wizarding world. Like she's going to do it to a student. Yeah. Uh, Hermione <laughs> saves the day again. Being the greatest, yeah, uh, comes up with an alternative plan where they lead Umbridge into the woods under the guise that they're going to show her Dumbledore's some secret weapon. Weapon Dumbledore's <laughs> been developing, and Umbridge. And I love this because she's obviously so wanting to ascend the ranks, yeah, you know, of government and importance that like you can see how she would be tricked into doing this. She's like so eager. To find more proof proof against Dumbledore and everyone else that like they're able to lead her into the forest. Yeah. And this is where the centaurs come in. This is where Grop comes in. There's a whole confrontation and we see Umbridge's disdain and hatred for anything that is like not quite human. Um, And I love I love this. I love that she's taken down. The movie has a great line where she's like. Tell them that I mean no harm. And Harry gets to say, I'm sorry, Professor, but I must tell no lies. <laughs> and then she's dragged away to her death. Which she's not actually killed. No. And it's weird. In the book, we find out that like she was apparently unharmed, but very like emotionally and psychologically scarred by her experience, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or just like pouty about it. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, Dumbledore like just waltzed into the woods and like dragged her out in the book. Yeah. Um, we don't know what happened to her in the movie until she reappears like what two movies from now three yeah. movies from now yeah randomly yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh but also the other line though when she, when she finds out hermione tricked her and she's like you know i really hate children <laughs> she's just like i love seeing her kind of finally snapped yeah yeah it's great i love it too and so the gang kind of all decides to go rescue Sirius. They all ride the Thestrals to the uh, Ministry of Magic, show up to the Department of Mysteries, which, you know, we talked a little bit about the Ministry of Magic set. Uh, The Department of Mysteries is also really interesting, and it goes in way more depth in the book. We have, like, rooms upon rooms of, like, what 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 the fuck is this place? I love it's like the Area Fifty One <laughs> of Wizards, which yeah. I really love. Things that like for as weird as the Wizarding world is, like to see things that even they're like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, is like really cool. Yeah, there's like a room with brains. There's this like archway that has like a veil that's very like ominous. And I and love mysterious. how like ancient it looks. Yeah, yeah. I, I the simplicity of it. Yeah. And the eeriness of it are really effective, I think. I agree. And so they go to where Harry had this vision, but Sirius isn't there. What is there is a prophecy with Harry Harry's name on it and some Death Eaters that are waiting to capture them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and this kind of initiates their attempt at escaping. Yeah. Harry has the prophecy in his hand. The Death Eaters are attacking. Um, we kind of get a montage in the film of like Luna and Neville and Ginny, which I kind of like it them focusing on those three. Yeah. Kind of getting moments of fighting the the Death Eaters. Mm-hmm. And I really love too the idea of like I think it makes a lot of sense. Like it in most books it would come across as like cheesy that like, okay, these kids are gonna take down like full grown adults. Yeah. But like, think about it this way. In school, when you're learning algebra, if I did do algebra against someone who's in ninth grade, they're gonna kick my I don't know algebra yeah. anymore <laughs> like um you know these they're holding their own you know they're yeah. not necessarily winning but and the fact that they're practicing that it makes sense that they'd be able to do that I yeah think. and they have learned so much in the DA classes which yeah. I love that we get to see them use it and you know it's this intense scene and then the order members kind of come in to rescue them when things look a little dark and we get Bellatrix in the scene, yeah. Lucius Malfoy is here, you know, Sirius and Tonks and Lupin and Mad-Eye and Kingsley. Everybody's coming in to fight. It's a big old wizard battle. It is. It's excellent. And, you know, we get this great scene in the movie where Harry and Sirius are kind of like dueling side by yeah, side. I really loved this moment, them working together. And it has one of the most heartbreaking and great Ugh. lines in the film where... Break my heart. <laughs> Sirius... When Harry disarms Lucius, says, way to go, James. Yeah. Or good job, James. Nice one, James. Nice one, James. Just, like, so casually, like, he doesn't even realize his mistake in calling Harry his dad's name. Yeah. Which makes it all the more heartbreaking when Bellatrix just flat out murders him. Just, and it's so fast. It happens really fast in both the film and in the book. 
Yeah. And Harry can not even react to it. And then Sirius ends up falling through this archway into into this veil and doesn't come back out. And I'm guessing we're supposed to assume that this is just sort of a death arch in general. Like <laughs> yeah. they put, they're like, here you go, you're dead. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's never confirmed. No. And I feel like when I first read this book, I was very like confused yeah. by the way Sirius died and almost like bothered by it and kind of wondering like, are they going to bring him back? Because mm-hmm. like, but I think reading it now, I actually really appreciate the way this plays out. And I think it captures the suddenness of death. Yes. When it happens to you and this, this feeling that like. He's going to come back. Yeah. Out. He, he just walked away for a moment. Like yeah. he's going to walk back. Yeah. And like. Harry just, not being able to accept that. Yeah. The slow realization that they're gone. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think what. J.K. Rowling did with this scene and the death of Sirius was actually very, very impactful kind of reading it a second time. Yeah. And then, you know, Harry runs after Bellatrix and then Voldemort shows up. Then Dumbledore is there. And this turns into a showdown between Dumbledore and Voldemort. I love it. It's um, it's so good. It's so good. Like every time I go back and watch this scene, I think it's perfect for a couple reasons. One I think it really feels like a battle between the two most powerful wizards. Yeah. Like the kind of flashy spells they're doing, mm-hmm. the, the the hugeness of it all. Yeah. You know what I, I love mean? that like there's fire, there's water, there's the glass. And like not only is Dumbledore trying to, you know, stop Voldemort, he's also trying to protect Harry. Yeah. He's actively trying to keep Harry out of harm's way, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. I love the no music yeah. in it. Um, and just all the cool spells they're doing, like Voldemort's scream yeah. that breaks all the glass that he sends at Dumbledore, mm-hmm. who turns it into sand. Um, and the other thing I love, too, is that it's not a long battle because really it is. I don't want to say it's fan service. Yeah. But like aside from like, oh, will Dumbledore kill Voldemort or vice versa? Like there's not really much in terms of stakes in this battle. No. So I just appreciate, you know, we do get to see a Dumbledore Voldemort battle and it's it's cool. It's satisfying to see Dumbledore fight, I think. Uh, It is. To see what he's made of. Yeah. Um, And yeah, it just, it doesn't overstay its welcome. I agree. And, you know, Voldemort tries to possess Harry at this moment as well. Tries to get Dumbledore to kind of kill Harry. Yeah. Which is really interesting. And I think the movie, the way they did it, really captured the way it happened in the book, which is Harry feeling like, he's being taken over that he can't resist. And like in the book, he literally is like, Oh, maybe Dumbledore will kill me. And he's like, then I'll be with Sirius Uh, and just thinks about Sirius. And like when he does that, it's that feeling of love and like, you know, wanting to be with that person that drives Voldemort away. Yeah. I, I think the movie, I think the movie even captures this a little bit better. Mm -hmm. I think the book, it works well, but you're a little bit like, what happened? Yeah. Um, But the film actually does something thematically in this story that's interesting, which is like it has a very strong theme of um, friendship and bonds and like what you want to fight for. Yeah. And unity. Mm -hmm. Um, It brings this up a number of times, you know, earlier on Luna in a scene tells Harry, like, if I were Voldemort, I, I would want you to feel disconnected from everyone. Yeah. Isolate you. Yeah. And Harry kind of wanting to go on his own. But like Hermione and everyone insisting that they go with him. Yeah. 
And even Harry, when he is telling everyone about all the cool shit he's done before, but being like, I almost always had help. Yeah. And acknowledging that he's never really done anything mm-hmm. solely on his own. And I think that all culminates really well in this scene. Yeah. Where Harry is mentally battling Voldemort. Mm-hmm. And I'm almost getting choked up talking I about know, it. it is. It's so impactful. And he has these memories of, you know, Ron and Hermione and Sirius and, you know, everybody who has been important to him and has been there for him. And, you know, there's this, you know, great line in the film too, where he says like, you'll never know love and friendship. And I feel sorry for you. And it's just so beautiful because like Harry is affirming what makes him Harry, you know, what makes him powerful, which is his friends and the people who care for him. And it is, it's such a beautiful moment and Voldemort is driven away. Yeah. The one thing I will say about that scene in the film that I don't love are those brief (laughs) shots of Voldemort. Yeah. He has this like abstract cloud pattern behind him, like a bad music video. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little bit. I wish they'd done something like a little different with that. But besides that, I think it's all done like beautifully. Yeah. We do get uh, the ministry officials and Fudge coming in just as Voldemort disappears. So they finally can't deny it anymore. And in the book, Dumbledore just totally takes charge and basically is like, all right, Fudge, shut the fuck up. All right, this is what you're going to do. This is what you're going to do. I'm back to being headmaster. This is gone. This is gone. Get out. I His one line that was my favorite was he tells Fudge, like, if he wants to, like, reach him again, he's like, I think you'll find letters addressed to the headmaster at Hogwarts will find me. You're like, oh, I love it. So, so wonderful. We kind of close um, out this story now with a bit of an explanation from Dumbledore about what's been going on. And there's a scene in Dumbledore's office with him and Harry. And Harry is really torn up about Sirius's death here. In the book, he actually like kind of destroys a lot of shit in Dumbledore's office. Yeah. And is like really venting his anger out and being like, it's my fault he's dead. How come you didn't like help me? How Why didn't you tell me what was happening and this whole time you've been avoiding me? And I really feel like it's, well overdue. Yeah, I I think at this point in the in in the series with all the shit that Harry's gone through, it makes sense for him to have like this kind of emotional breakdown. Yeah. And Dumbledore is like, "Listen, you're totally right." Yeah. And like, I haven't been doing as good of a job as I should have been. Yeah. And tells Harry that he didn't want to tell him what was going on because he wanted to protect him. He also thought Voldemort would try to possess his mind more if he knew that Dumbledore and him had like a closer relationship. So was trying to avoid him because of that. And, you know, admits that like, it's partially my fault that Sirius died. It's not your fault. Like if I had told you what was going on, you probably would have realized that Voldemort was like, planting this information in your mind. And he finally explains some things to Harry here. The first thing he explains is why he has to live with the Dursleys. <laughs> yes. Which was mm, a good enough explanation, I guess. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I a hundred percent buy it, but okay. I, I'm glad they at least uh, rolling at least made an explanation. You know what I mean? Cause yeah. like this whole time you're like, why can't he go anywhere else? Yeah. And the reason being that like the bond, his mother's love that protected him mm-hmm. is like, Some kind of spell, basically. Yeah, and it's strong when, or it 
is mostly active when he is around his Aunt Petunia because she is his aunt, his mother's sister. Yeah, and like, has her mother's blood. Even though blood. she's horrible to Harry, um, she still agreed to take him in. Mm-hmm. And that kind of like formed... Seals the protection? It sealed the deal. Yeah, <laughs> and he has to return at least once a year. Those are the terms and conditions of this seal of protection. When she clicked the, the, that little box, I, I agreed to the terms and services. <laughs> that was all the shit that she didn't read. Exactly. And Dumbledore also explains... Why a like big evil wizard was like, I got to kill this one baby. Yeah. Um, Which is because of this prophecy and ends up, you know, telling Harry about the prophecy and basically that it could have been him or Neville in this position. Yeah, that but was interesting. Voldemort chose him as the one the prophecy was about and ended up kind of causing Harry to be the chosen one. It's a little, I'm a little mixed on the whole prophecy thing. Yeah. Um, I appreciate getting an explanation. On one hand, though, like, it was a little contrived because, like, how Voldemort heard only part of the prophecy. Yeah. When the other half of the prophecy conveniently explained. <laughs> why he shouldn't try to kill Harry. Why he shouldn't do that. <laughs> um, and the prophecy just kind of um, establishes the idea that, like, Harry or Voldemort are going to have to kill each other. Yeah. Which. I think we've sort of known this already. Yeah. Like, I understand that, like, Harry, in the perspective of the story, having to realize that, like, I'm going to have to be the one to do this. Yeah. But, like, from the perspective of the reader, it's like, okay, but, like. We know. The reader knows <laughs> that, like, some random auror isn't going to be the one to kill Voldemort. Like, it it's going to have Harry. to be Harry. Like, you already kind of know that. Yeah. So, like, it's a bit of an anti-climax to the prophecy. But I'm kind of okay with that, too, because, like, the prophecy was really just a MacGuffin that wasn't really... Yeah. It, the book didn't put too much focus on it, so it didn't feel like a letdown or anything. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of okay with it. Yeah, I agree. I just want to say that this is the part where we we'll, were mentioning Dumbledore's dick moves, which is a segment from our episode. Yes. And his dick move was not telling Harry what was going on, because <laughs> let's just be honest with each other. Let's just communicate better. Yeah. How about that, Dumbledore? Dumbledore's dick move was just basically everything he did this whole book. Every single thing. I, I Yeah, I think he kind of explains away his reasoning well enough, but on the other hand, you're also like... "Mm." What are you thinking, man? Yeah, like, wasn't there a better alternative to everything you did? Yeah. I think this basically wraps up the story. Harry goes back to the Dursleys. Uh, The members of the Order threaten them for him. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, yeah, this is the end. What? Which one's better? (sighs) Okay, so I would just like to say that I remember when I first read this book, I found it very slow at the beginning. Yeah. And I think part of that was because, um, you know, I maybe didn't connect with the themes as strongly when I was younger. And also, like, Harry Potter is such perfect escapism when you read it. Uh, And especially for a kid being in Hogwarts, I think, is the embodiment of that. And so I think no matter how interesting the story was up until that, as a kid, you're like... Let's get to Hogwarts. Come on, I want to get to Hogwarts. I want to get to Hogwarts and see everyone and the teachers and everything. Um, So I was really surprised rereading this, how much I loved this book. Yeah. I think it's my favorite book so far that we've read. 
I have to agree with you. I was shocked because I remember sort of disliking this book when I read it before, being like, oh, Harry's so angsty. Like, this is yeah. when he's so annoying the whole time. But honestly, I was very touched by the themes in this book. You know, getting to see these characters, like, in this horrible position, doing the best they can, trying to resist where they can. Like, it was so inspiring to me. And, you know, I really cared about what was going on. Like, I don't know. I just loved this book so much. Yeah, for as big as it was, yeah, like I found all the subplots very interesting. Even Quidditch this time around, yeah, yeah. Um, I love the themes of it, and you know, in regards to the movie, it's a great movie too. It is. I think it's a much more concise Harry Potter movie than we're used to getting. It's not as like drawn out. Yeah, it, it's not as I don't want to say meandering because I love that about the Harry Potter films, but mm-hmm. it's much more focused on like, like you, you know, it doesn't even address Quidditch. Yeah. Quidditch basically doesn't exist in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it does talk about, it does it very well. I agree. It's just, I love the book so much. Yeah. And I was surprised by how much I really, really liked it. So even though the movie is good, I'm definitely going to go with the book for this one. Yeah. Even though uh, they cut Harry's hair in this movie, <laughs> as much as I appreciate that. <laughs> it wasn't quite enough was, to tip the scales. No. <laughs> I'm going to have to go with book on this one. Yeah. All right. Let's do lightning round. Let's do lightning. Okay. First up for lightning. Uh, Hermione's activism in spew her efforts to free house elves returned in this book. Yeah. Um, Because she was like knitting clothes for the house elves to like free them. Yeah. Uh, and I'm once again kind of enraged because like it's all just ends up a being joke. a joke because Dobby ends up taking all the hats and everything, which was weird because later Hermione sees Dobby with all the hats, but like doesn't realize or mention it. Yeah. Um. But oh, God, I just want this to be something. I want especially it to... with Creature and kind of like seeing how like messed up that relationship is. Yeah, and Dumbledore even acknowledges like, hey, maybe if Sirius was like treated Creature with any amount of like kindness yeah like creature wouldn't have betrayed him and he wouldn't have died so i don't know i just want this to be something yeah and i don't think it ever will be i know it sucks okay next for lightning round there's this scene where harry goes to mcgonagall's office to get career advice and of course umbridge is there and harry's like i kind of want to be an auror and umbridge is like basically like your dreams are dead harry like you'll never be an auror but i just have to read this scene because it's so good I think you'll also find, said Umbridge, her voice very cold now, that the Ministry looks into the records of those applying to be Aurors. They're criminal records. Unless you're prepared to take even more exam after Hogwarts, you should really look at another, which means that this boy has as much chance of becoming an Auror as Dumbledore has of ever returning to this school. A very good chance then, said Professor McGonagall. Potter has a criminal record, said Umbridge loudly. Potter has been cleared of all charges, said Professor McGonagall (laughs) even more loudly. Professor Umbridge stood up. She was so sure that this did not make a great deal of difference, but her fussy, simpering demeanor had given place to a hard fury that made her broad, flabby face look oddly sinister. Potter has no chance whatsoever of becoming an Auror. Professor McGonagall got to her feet, too, and in her case, this was a much more impressive move. She towered over Professor Umbridge. 
Potter, she said in ringing tones, I will assist you to become an oar if it is the last thing I do. If I have to coach you nightly, I will make sure you achieve the required results. The Minister of Magic will never employ Harry Potter, said Umbridge, her voice rising furiously. There may well be a new Minister of Magic by the time Potter is ready to join, shouted Professor McGonagall. Aha, shrieked Professor Umbridge, pointing a stubby finger at McGonagall. Yes, 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 of course. That's what you want, isn't it? You want Cornelius Fudge replaced by Albus Dumbledore. You think you'll be where I am, don't you, senior undersecretary to the minister and head Mistress to boot, you are raving, said Professor McGonagall, superbly disdainful. Potter, that concludes our career consultation. (laughs) I just gotta say again, McGonagall rules in this book. I love her. She's so great. I just love, she's like, Harry, I will make you an Personally, if it is the last thing I do. Um, I wanted to say the scene in the movie when Harry and Cho kiss, I like because, uh, the mistletoe is like growing from the ceiling. Yeah. Which makes sense because it's like the room of requirements, which I never really thought about until now. They needed a reason to kiss. Yeah. And the room is like a really good wingman. And it's like, (laughs) hey, I got you covered. Like, let me just grow this in. That's awesome. Um, And on top of that, the scene later when Harry's telling Hermione and Ron about it, there's kind of a, a part where they kind of just start laughing near the end. Yeah. And that was actually like unscripted. It just kind of like <laughs> happened. They just started laughing about it and yeah. it made it into the final film. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Uh, I just want to say another thing for lightning round. Um, Umbridge's office in the movie. Yes. Is so perfect. Like the pink walls, the plates, the like antique decorative plates on the walls with the cats that are like running through it and like meowing. And in particular, like the the scene where she's going to like use the Cruciatus curse on Harry and they're all in the office. Like the cats are meowing really loudly. <laughs> and it really like adds to the scene. I think they're really riled they're, like, up. Like really going at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love how much the office transforms for her. In yeah. This movie. Yeah. Um, last thing for lightning round in the book, the Sorting Hat gives a new song. Uh, yeah. And it was really interesting. It talked about, like, the history of Hogwarts and the Sorting Hat just questioning the idea of different houses. Yeah. And whether it just is creating divisions in the wizarding community, which was really interesting. Yeah. But um, at, at a certain point in the song, the hat is like, and uh, the Gryffindor people are courageous and the Slytherins want power and the Ravenclaws are really smart. And it's like, and Hufflepuff took everyone else. <laughs> And you're like, okay. Like, it is so direct about being like, Hufflepuff is where just all the other people go. <laughs> like, there's nothing special about it. There's nothing. In, it's just where all the others go. And that just really cracked me up that it was so direct about that. Uh, that's it for lightning round. And that concludes our episode. Thank you so much for listening. Um, we love doing these Harry Potter episodes. It's been really fun to do. We hope you enjoyed it as well. And if you would like to support us on Patreon, you can do that. All our supporters um, over there get access to our bonus episodes and also have priority um episode requests as well yeah as well as uh monthly schedules and just kind of updates from us as you know uh and if you can't become a patron giving us a uh review or rating on apple podcasts is super helpful as well yeah uh you can email us find us on twitter instagram facebook all those links are on our new website cover to credits.com uh just head over there you can listen to episodes there and find all our social media links Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.